Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Village Global SolarPunk. I'm here today with my co-host Ian Cinnamon, and today we have a very special guest, Chris Power. Chris is the founder and CEO of Hadrian, which is building the factories for the future of rocket ships and advanced manufacturing, with a mission of reinvigorating the U.S. space and defense industrial base. Hadrian is backed not only by Village, but also by other amazing investors, including Founders Fund, Lux Capital, A6Z, Floodgate, and others. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Chris, why don't we start off by just hearing a little bit more about your background and Hadrian? You know, how, how do you describe what you do? Yeah, so Hadrian, very simply, is in the short run building uh, highly automated factories for high precision machining for uh, commercial space, where we're basically doing things 10 times faster and 50% cheaper than, than anybody else. And to give you a sense of the space supply chain for parts at the moment, whether it's rockets, satellites, jets, drones, anything, you know, you're getting parts in eight to 12 weeks, sometimes up to 18 weeks, you know, 40% of the orders can be late or have quality issues. And the customer service and transparency is, is terrible. You know, so you call Ian's machine shop and he says, I say, where are my parts? And Ian has no idea. So it's, it's a complete shit show. So what we're building is a better mousetrap for um, high precision machining in space, which is parts in one to two weeks, Amazon Prime level reliability and complete transparency where, you know, everyone's got a live real-time dashboard of their parts in our factory. That's kind of like product market fit version one, um, but that will lead us into having automated machining for space, defense, semiconductor, eVTOL, um, energy, because basically the entire advanced manufacturing market in the US routes 80 to 90% of their manufacturing through the same 3,000 small high-precision machine shops. So what we're building for space, you know, is the same automation that we all use for a defense and semiconductor in these other advanced industries. And what we're doing alongside of that is, um, you know, rebuilding the American advanced manufacturing workforce and actually retraining thousands of people on our highly automated machines uh, and systems to be able to enable that growth. Because um, what people don't realize is that, it's a $50, $60 billion you know, revenue per year industry that's split up across about 4,000 small businesses, the average revenue of which is you know, $8 to $12 million in their mom and pops. Um, and all those mom and pops are owned by 60-year-olds. So over the next decade, uh, in the same decade that we're butting heads with China or trying to win Space Race 2, you're going to see the supply base completely collapse domestically. So kind of version one of Hadrian is... You know, this amazing order of magnitude, better factory as a service product for commercial space. But the real mission is to build out factories across the country for all those advanced manufacturing industries so that we can kind of replace the legacy industrial base as these folks retire out and make sure that we've got another good 50 to 100 years at least of American dominance in advanced manufacturing. I love that. And Chris, um, I have to ask, as a fellow immigrant, why are you working on frontier technologies to support America? You know, what drives you out of everything you could be doing what compelled you to, to de dedicate your life to this? So, so I view manufacturing as basically the underpinning of uh, freedom and safety, right? I'm a big subscriber in you want to have a, you know, a big stick of carrot softly. And what people don't realize is that it's not about, you know, how good a specific fighter jet is or how efficient a rocket is. It's about how much you can produce. You know, logistics and manufacturing is what win conflicts. It's not, it's not you know, one piece of high technology that happens to be 20% better than the next guy's fighter jet or whatever. And if you look back historically, roughly every, roughly every 100 years, the reserve currency of the world and the power balance of the world shifts. Um, you know, it went from uh, Germany, the British Empire, British Empire to the American Empire, and now we're kind of at the tail end of that as well. And if you look geopolitically, the last time this shift happened, we went from, you know, one liberal democracy, you know, in the Brits to the American liberal democracy and, you know, like net-net for the world, that's a pretty good position to be in. The option we have on the table now is basically if America fails, the CCP is the next obvious choice for reserve currency, the world holder, and the dominant force in the kind of global order, which is a really scary position to be in. So as an immigrant, 
coming from Australia and Australians generally tend to have a much more balanced worldview than Americans whose worldview effectively is Russia bad is often the case is you can look at these things happening across the world and you realize that for all of the flaws, America is the last bastion of freedom and hope of like a certain way of life. And what I realized was I had a certain perspective and skill set on how to scale up industrials, businesses, and combine them with technology to reinvigorate that supply base. And that doing doing a thesis like that in Australia was kind of useless in a mission-driven sense because you could build a highly successful business, but it wouldn't really tip the scales of history in kind of the free world's favor. So the only option is to build it in the US. That's kind of my reason for dedicating my life to this is because I believe manufacturing is a fundamental ingredient in you know, having an incredibly strong uh, culture and an incredibly strong position in the world. And that because America lost it, it, ca- it cascaded into these series of events where we now, now find ourselves in a relatively weak position with the with the knowledge that it's kind of us or the CCP are the two like global order options. Um, America is obviously flawed, but the only good option out of those two. Um, and that is, you know, in a decade, this decade is probably the one that will decide you know, who wins and who loses, and it's worth pushing as much energy into that mission as humanly possible. So uh, on that note, when you think about fast forwarding, call it five years, um, you talked a little bit about the longer term vision of Hadrian, but I'd love to understand uh, a little more in depth on that longer term vision, but also the implications for the West and the world, as you just described. What do you envision society looking like in five years or maybe even 10 years into the future um, as Hadrian continues to grow and succeed and allow us to have that automated advanced manufacturing? Yeah, so the, the way I look at it is, and you know, it's a Village Global podcast, so I think the software analogy is going to resonate here, is one of the reasons why we have so many great software companies is because the fundamental infrastructure is in place to make creating software very cheap and very scalable, right? You no longer have to spend 50% of your backend software engineering resources standing up servers. You can just turn on AWS. You no longer have to build notifications. You can just switch on Twilio. You no longer have to build payments. You can just switch on Stripe, right? Which allows the cost of starting a new software company to be super cheap. And it also allows the velocity of new companies being formed to be much, 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 much greater, right? So you're seeing both a decrease in the cost of starting new companies and a velocity in the existing companies where they're, they're focusing on the innovative side, the products, the deep engineering, not the basic infrastructure, which is repeated across every company. With advanced manufacturing, and if you think ahead five to 10 years in the future of the future that you want to see, which is a very you know solar punk thing or like the Jetsons future, right? There's, there's flying cars, it's the green earth, uh, you know, you've got in orbit or highly efficient manufacturing that's not polluting the earth. You've got all this cool automation, you know, all of that basically requires this advanced manufacturing subcomponent infrastructure layer. Um, and without that, you don't really get all these innovative companies being able to being able to scale up in any of these arenas, right? So hopefully in five years' time, what we've got is, you know, 10, 15 factories across the country in each of these large manufacturing hubs that are serving space, defense, semiconductor, energy, and you know, EV toll and all these other categories. And what we've managed to do is the same impact that, say, Stripe or AWS had on software, where for someone to scale up a successful eVTOL company can be at the touch of a button because they're just spooling up half a Hadrian factory, not having to figure out an entire ridiculous supply chain just to get parts in on time. And that we are truly seeing this order of magnitude increase in the iteration cycle of how fast an aerospace you know design engineer can iterate towards a product and that we've really really have half the cost of advanced manufacturing in the country um, and if we nail that for one or two industries in five years that'll be a dream and hopefully we can move a lot faster than that so um i want to call out we have a lot of listeners who love hardware as well but appreciate you catering it to the software analogy so on the note of being able to kind of manufacture what needs to be made at will as we look into the future, help explain the other side of that, which is procurement. Um, on some of the prior episodes of SolarPunk, we talked to some great uh, investors and founders who've talked a lot about how procurement could be made better or change. How do you think the, our ability to manufacture things or advanced items more rapidly ties into how the US government per se handles procurement and buying items? Um, do you think those need to go hand in hand or do you think of those as totally isolated, separate issues? I think companies that partner with Hadrian will have a much better time of going through more agile procurement cycles, right? So 
we deal with the procurement people in commercial companies. So they have really, you know, there's some defense primes which might be slower than new space companies, but broadly compared to say the government, they're, they're pretty fast, right? Um, and we're dealing with, you know, millions of dollars as an individual contract, not like F35 program or something in Anduril, which is a congressional line item that's, you know, $100 million and takes five years to get something across the line. But I will say that because large OEMs or large manufacturers, like say Northrop Grumman, are used to having these long procurement cycles, that means that their supply chain planning can be very slow in line with that. Like if you know you're going to win a deal in two years' time and it's got a 10-year delivery cycle, right, you, you can spin up your supply chain, which would be Hadrian, like pretty, pretty slowly and pretty carefully. Whereas what we're seeing in commercial space is, oh, there's a Starlink you know, version 2 is coming out. We need to change the supply chain across a two-week period and have the supply chain as agile as the customer. So what I think you'll see is, as the government moves towards a more agile procurement cycle, um, you know, so the OODA loop is much shorter, that will have this downstream impact of, oh, annuals winning all these contracts because they're super agile. And, you know, how does how does maybe a legacy defense OEM compete with that? Well, then they have to they have to speed up their supply chain as much as they speed up themselves. And if they continue to partner with legacy businesses that are used to delivering parts in 18 weeks or, you know, they can't spin up something new faster than six months and they, they're not going to be able to react fast enough. But, you know, Hadrian's procurement problem as a, you know, commercial company is much less difficult than someone selling directly to the Defense Department. But definitely, I think those companies selling to the DOD can be, you know, they can be enabled by Hadrian in a really material way. And everything you're describing about Hadrian's mission, how it came to be, it, it, it's all very logical. Like it, To me, at least, and to Lucas, that's why we invested. It makes a tremendous amount of sense. Why has this not been done until now? Like, What makes this the right time to start Hadrian as opposed to why didn't this happen five years ago, 10 years ago, yep. et cetera? There's, there's a couple of macro reasons. One is that if you tried this five years ago, there was there's simply not a group of growing customers which you can build a fast growth, fast growth startup off of, right? So five years ago, if you try and go start a new machine shop and then go sell to Lockheed, your sales cycle might be three years or you might not even get a foot in the door, right? But what we've got is all these advanced agile companies in commercial space, EV toll like a Joby Aviation, who, because they're trying to move fast, they're growing super quickly. They're willing to, and you know, they're run by 30-year-olds who are from startup land. They're willing to try new solutions on the supply chain side. And that was just not the case five years ago. And 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 you know, in startups in general, you do need this set of customers who have real pain that are growing super fast that are the early adopter archetype to be able to fuel that initial kind of go-to-market cycle. And then you cross the chasm to your, you know, your big customers, right? So would Stripe be able to sell to Walgreens or whatever? if they didn't have Y Combinator startups who are willing to use the shitty first version, no. So that pattern for Hadrian only exists now. It, it really did not five years ago. Secondly, a lot of the technology, frankly, was not there. So a lot of the trick of Hadrian is that we're really good at not, we're really good at rebuilding everything where we need to, but integrating off the shelf hardware and systems where we can. And that gets us to an automated factory in 12 months, not three years. But if you wind the clock back five years ago, was half of that there? You know, probably not. And secondly, I think there were a couple of startups that tried to do automated manufacturing, say, eight years ago. And there's a lot of similar pitfalls and red herrings, regardless of what type of manufacturing you're trying to do, which, which gave me the clues of what the right way to navigate the kind of mind puzzle was. And again, I, so I think if you try this the first time, you, you probably fail. So there's, there's a bunch of other dynamics, but those, those are kind of three of the key ones why kind of now is the right time. And Chris, to sort of tie in the topic that Ian asked you about procurement and then what you were talking about, the geopolitical threats that we face, yeah. how, did, how did those things impact the readiness of the defense sector in America, but also in the West broadly? And what do you think needs to change for us to be able to you know, live up to the challenge? So, so I think there's two things. One is procurement of, say, new fighter jets. Like, let's just use the F-16 as an example. It's not a procurement cycle for a new fighter jet. It's just simply, hey, we might need 2x as many of them next year, right? Because the supply chain has been baked with a bunch of legacy machine shops, if you tried to scale up the number of F-16s by even 30%, every one of these machine shops is running at capacity or close to. So the elasticity of the supply chain to spool up new capacity is like incredibly inelastic, right? So the government can say, hey, jump. 
that doesn't mean the supply chain is going to react fast enough. On And on new procurement cycles, what you want is for a vendor to be able to ship like an Android drone or something, right? And go, this is the first version, but let's iterate on it together every month. And it's more like a SaaS company than it is a like cost plus big defense contract. So the government has to adopt those styles of procurement, right? Um, to speed everything up. Because what that enables is effectively, you know, good product iteration and a competitive dynamic versus, hey, there's this one big contract that's getting awarded and where we end up is the product is not good because there's no competition, right? Um, so that that's how I see it. Effectively, it's like moving from cost plus to a competitive dynamic with real SLAs and probably you solve, you know, you, you solve a lot of it in that, you know, doing that in the real world is is probably harder than harder than, you know, we think. Right. Um, and you mentioned a while ago the the threat of the CCP in you know where America and West are uh, in this decade. Is your view that we're in a you know Cold War 2.0 in a new space race? Um, how, how how do you look at at the situation? Okay, so definitely a new space race. I don't know why that's you know that's not if that's not obvious to anyone it should be. I mean they have a rover on the moon. We don't. There's obviously a race to who gets the first sustainable moon base for a variety of reasons. So I, I think that's obvious. I also think what's non-obvious that doesn't get talked about enough is that control of Leo and Geo affects so much on Earth. So if you just knocked out all the GPS satellites, for example, uh, in orbit, then literally you'd win every military battle on land instantly. So even if it's not necessarily war fighting in space, having dominance and freedom of action in space is like super critical. And I think it's obvious from the laser tests which the Russians do, the posturing that the Chinese are doing in space, that that's obviously what's happening. Um, so you don't want to be an aggressor, but certainly we have to keep freedom of action and freedom of movement in orbit in order to protect all our ground assets. So anyone who hasn't realized that's going on, going on in orbit, in many orbits, is, is kind of off base. Um, in terms of domestically, yeah, I think you would easily argue we're at least in a gray war or a cold war, but in a very different manner from the kind of 80s, you know, Russian-US Cold War. And I think we're seeing a lot more kind of frog in the boiling water scenarios where there's a lot of incrementalism being done to the US by the other side, which goes unnoticed. Yes, I, I certainly believe that, you know, if you ask me to flip a coin, like, you know, are we in some kind of conflict or not? I think the answer is yes. It's just a different kind of conflict. Right. And in the context of that of that conflict, and this is a, a bit more of a technical question, but given your background in manufacturing and supply chain, I, I'm very curious to hear what you have to say. How careful do we have to be about you know the the supply chain and the disruptions that are going to happen there, uh, especially given the you know um, the amount of supply that China has on you know um, manuf manufacturing material materials like lithium, cobalt. Uh, nickel uh, and all these others that are vital to to produce a lot of the of the products that we use today. Yeah, incredibly important, and I would say both on manufacturing capacity itself and skills. Right, like can, if we had all the inputs, can we actually build stuff? Secondly, um, the process know how to do that, and then thirdly, yeah, the inputs themselves. So whether it's like EV battery packs or it's actual raw material like aluminum, yeah, I think we. If anyone bothered to look at a you know bill of materials for a certain you know consumer good that they really relied on, or TVs, or laptops, or you know office computers, everything up to you know CNC machines to you know how does a car run because of chips and stuff like that, I think I think it's critically important. And in general, we've done a pretty poor job of securing supply um, you know across the world where we have allies that are producing those raw materials for us. I think there's a lot of people in the US that understand this and it's starting to change, but certainly it's it's ultra critical to secure supply of that globally. And unfortunately, in territories like China and Russia, they do have a lot of the mineral deposits of some of those core input materials, but also we do. Also in South America, there's a ton. In Africa, there is a ton. In Australia, there's certainly a ton. And yeah, I think in general, you know, is the government responding well enough to this? Probably not. Is awareness starting to creep in that we do need to go secure supply of all this stuff? I think yes. I think the, the real problem is the consumer, right? The beautiful thing about America is if the average consumer starts screaming about something, the government like, you know, gets their shit together. And we've generally been pretty good about that. So I think when you can't buy an iPhone for less than $4,000 because Shenzhen's been shut down, then I think we'll see a pretty strong American line response pretty quickly. But at the moment, are we moving fast enough? No. Yeah. 
So on that note, let's say you were in, let's call it the position of ultimate power. We could argue whether that's the president of the United States or some other position. Would there be one or two things that you would do to try to get us on the right track, change our mentality? What would those be? So there's a couple of key moves that I would make, but you have to do it very carefully to avoid being just like a colonial power all over again, right? Like we don't actually want to, like African nations, we don't want to go take control of them. We want to build them up as self-sustaining you know, countries and, you know, they can have whatever political system that they want. But I would definitely go out and broker financial deals where we're giving African nations cheap infrastructure debt, American construction know-how, um, but do it in a way where we're lifting up the population instead of the way China's doing it, where it's aggressive debt structures, which means they can take the ports or the infrastructure if they default. And a lot of the work is actually being done by Chinese workers that are getting imported into Africa versus what should be happening is, hey, let's send you know, several thousand Americans who are really good at construction into these nations, teach people how to build their own shit and actually, you know, build them up as true partners. And as part of that, there is a resource deal that we that we need for some of those core input materials. But there's a way to do it where, you know, America comes off as not a colonial aggressor, that we come off as like a true partner that's building up nations. And I think that forms a long-term partnership and buys a lot of loyalty over time, right? So definitely stable, like helping build up African nations um, with both debt, know-how and training in order to have long-term deals for core input materials is, is really key. Same thing with India, same thing with uh, South America. Um, the second thing, and, you know, most of the core input materials like your cobalt or your lithium or whatever can be found on the African nation. You know, that's your EVs, that's your, you know, blah, 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 blah. Second thing I would do is massively invest in the Indian healthcare and pharma industries. So basically there's, there's kind of, this is way, way, way too broad and anyone in healthcare is going to cringe at me saying this, but, but effectively there's like these high in, in pharma manufacturing, you've got like two bits. There's basically like generate the input materials, which is a lot of really complicated chemistry. And then there's the second bit, which is like put the pills together and, you know, do some mixing and have this massive production arm that's throwing out a bunch of antibiotics. Right. So America outsourced both of those. What people don't realize, though, is that uh, China actually uh, controls a lot of the manufacturing of the input materials, but countries like India actually have incredibly good bulk manufacturing of generics, right? So what I would do in, for the healthcare and pharma side is actually spin up a research agency in the US that was rediscovering how to make all these inputs for antibiotics, for example, but then do exclusive licenses with countries like India that they can be our manufacturing partner. But the same pattern again, we re we re we reclaim the tech and the know-how, we license it for free to a country like India to be that manufacturing power. But again, we do it in a way that's enabling them um, that they can build out their own industries versus it being kind of like this colonial power thing. But that also allows us to secure supply of antibiotics, right? And then the third thing that I would do is uh, actually cybersecurity. So what people don't realize about manufacturing is now that all the files are digital, right? Whether it's a rocket engine design or a semiconductor chip design or you know whatever it happens to be, uh, like espionage is a real thing, but also just uh, hacking and um, you know general like ransomware. So you you know if you look past the news. You know, the amount of logistics companies or small manufacturers that have gone down for 14 to 21 days with like ransomware attacks in the last three months has gone through the roof because it's a like it's a signal that, hey, you know, cyber forces that are against us are watching and they're starting to go after manufacturing businesses. Right. But your average logistics company that's running on SAP or, you know, whatever manufacturing company does not have the cybersecurity headspace or nows to go up against a nation state. Frankly, 90% of the hacks that happen aren't hacks. It's a phishing email with a ransomware thing and someone like logs into like, you know, hot girl added me on LinkedIn or like, you know, the CEO sends them an email and they respond with their phone number and they get a link to click and then all of a sudden they've got access to the entire systems. But I think it's actually, it would be very simple for the government to put together a paid for program where any small business in the critical manufacturing supply chain just got a grant and a SWAT team to just go in and fix the problem. And, you know, if someone really wants to penetrate you, like they're going to with enough time, but getting everybody to a 90% security level where the cost of penetrating is much, much, much higher at a very scalable way is it's like not that hard. So those are kind of the, those are the kind of the three big moves that I would make uh, for securing supply of like, you know, long-term like critical manufacturing processes. 
I, I love how tactical those are. Um, I, I'm curious, Chris, from a cultural perspective, are there changes that, that you think we should be making as well? And if so, what, what are those? Uh, you know, I know a, a couple of weeks ago, we chatted messages about uh, all the advocacy for environmental movements in Germany that, that we realized only now that, that was actually being funded by Putin, right? Um, and and we, <laughs> we, we know of a lot of these movements that, that, that could potentially be uh, also be used um, as a way to to push people to to do the interests of the other side. How how, how do you think that those interact on, on this topic? Look, I think culturally, you know, everything is downstream of culture, and what we have in America is because we've been so successful. The current demographics are a group of broadly, and I'm using broad statements here, is unserious people who've, you know, are too far abstracted away from the problem of, hey, you know, at some point 200 years ago, we were still tribal and might kill each other over a loaf of bread. So what you have is a bunch of people making these strategic decisions that grew up in such a peaceful and successful time that their pattern recognition is basically based on that dynamic, not on a kind of scarcity dynamic, which is where you get these decisions being made of, what I would call unserious decisions, right? Like a serious decision for climate change is, hey, American populace, you're intelligent. Nuclear is pretty rational. Yes, there are some risks here and here's how we're mitigating them with technology. And by the way, we're putting a nuclear plant in the middle of the desert. It's not everyone's favorite thing, but you can either do that or you can do this, you know, some green energy strategies, which are so fragile that if we were getting into a conflict scenario, we're basically giving the leash to Russia or Saudi Arabia because now they have oil dominance over us, right? But the way I would describe it culturally is like, are, are we serious or are we unserious? You know, are you serious about building the country for the next several hundred years and having rational adult conversations about all those trade-offs? Or are you going to have a two militant parts of the population, one saying ESG good and one saying ESG bad, and both of them are wrong, you know. So I think culturally what, what we need to see very quickly is not a tribalism thing. It's just everyone coming around the table under this concept of like, are we serious about building the country and all these dynamics and making some hard nuanced trade-offs or are we going to be unseriousness and, divert, you know, revert to like, you know, one side or the other without all this nuance, right? Um, and I think culturally that's what we need to see is that seriousness, not anything more or less, you know, discreet than that, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, and I'm curious, is part of that answer somehow the sort of like American patriotism, American greatness that that, that we saw maybe the, the, the good version of it uh, back in the 70s, the 80s, and now maybe a, a weirder version of it coming out in the last five to 10 years? Um, or, or do we need something new? H how do you think about that? So I don't think, I think patriotism is too wrapped up in nationalism and gets co-opted by both sides as either good or bad, right? But I think the original version of America was a bunch of serious people wanting to start something new and argue over everything until it was right or they agreed to it, right? Like that's the ultimate, that was the ultimate core of the country in the first place, you know? And then you have patriotism and nationalism of celebrating that and then it gets twisted over the years and there's become a form of like maybe some types of patriotism or nationalism actually are less helpful than they are helpful. But coming back to the core of the founding story of America, which was obviously full of problems with things like slavery, but ultimately from a like source of, you know, geopolitics and culture, it was, hey, we've got all these problems in the British Empire, the French Empire, where we all came from. Let's create something new and take that process of creating something new seriously. It wasn't just that we ended up with the constitution or whatever. It was, let's think all these dynamics through of how to build a culture and a process structure that this thing survives, right? But now you have hundreds of years of that being successful and people resting on their laurels. And what we've forgotten is that the culture that, basically we've lost the culture that produced the success in the first place and rediscovering that art of, hey, you know, we're all building this thing together. Like this thing isn't working, but it's cool. Don't get attached to it. Let's just edit it and, you know, move on and try and do that. Now that's, that's like a big ask. That's what America means to me is the seriousness of building a country which gives us all the ability to spend our time on podcasts and stuff, not fighting each other over food or fighting the British, right? But in American culture, what we lost was the maintenance of that. And by maintenance, I mean, you know, if you look at the Roman Empire as an example, 
if you think about, hey, we're so successful over a thousand year period, what are we going to do with all the senators in 500 years time that they're 60, but they've never fought the barbarians? So how are they going to take the process of governing the empire seriously? The answer is they're not, unless you enforce a cultural thing where when you're young, you get reminded of, you know, what, how important it is in a very visceral way. And one answer to that is things like the draft. Because if you send someone, you know, a young centurion to fight the barbarians and then he or she is a senator at 50 years old or whatever, you can be damn sure that they've got enough patent recognition to make incredibly good, you know, decisions, right? Because they've, they've seen that abstraction layer. We're not so far away from being on the street fighting each other, right? Um, and one thing, this is also something that Jewish people do incredibly well with the rituals of maintaining that culture that made them successful in the first place. America does not have that. We do not have the shared winter solstice ritual or the draft or that thing that maintains the generational discipline over time so that the culture continually produces serious people that govern the country well and are willing to make hard decisions that are based in reality. Whereas at the moment, through honestly, through no people's fault, it's just a mixture of bad rituals, bad culture, and like, you know, we had so much success that if you grew up thinking that your hardest problem was like arguing over the colour of someone's hair... Like, you're not going to make good decisions because you've forgotten that actually we used to, you know, not so long ago, 50 years ago, like, no one could eat, no one could drink water at the same table. We're still still segregating black and white people. We're still at war. We were sending our 17-year-olds to die. Like, it's that sort of cultural ritual and reminder that we've lost that has produced this many unserious people that are making decisions that they genuinely, this is the scary thing, decisions that they genuinely think are good because their pattern recognition is so far abstracted across the reality of how the world really works, that that's the really dangerous situation. And that's what we need to correct on a cultural level is that mechanism or ritual of like reminding people, you know, where we got from in the first place. Right. I love that. Um, it, it reminds, it reminds me, uh, I think we've brought this up on the show before, but there's this quote by Mar- Margaret Thatcher, which is uh, Europe was created by uh, history and America was created by philosophy. Right. And that's that's something really unique and powerful about this country. I think you're completely right. And that has to have a very integrated view of, you know, the dream of America is true for some people. It is not true for everybody. There are still vast swathes of the population where, you know, the system is genuinely bent against them. Right. But the original thing of America was let's build a system and let's edit it together when we see that it's not working. What we've lost is kind of the detachment of the population from the system that is, is is governing us. Like people forget that the reason why there's a red traffic light is because some guy crashed a car when it wasn't a horse anymore. And someone was like, we should probably make this a thing so that no one crashes cars into each other. Right. But none of it is real. It's all an abstraction over a process and things that we've invented. And what we've lost is the cultural seriousness of looking at as a fun problem to solve versus oh, the system is against me or it's not editable or, you know, the system's not important in the first place because, look, everything functions. I'll give you a really practical example. This is going to sound stupid. Outside the factory, we've got a fire hydrant. A couple of months ago, some guy ran his car into it. Not a huge deal. There's a little bit of water in the street. Our head of operations calls the fire department and they say, no, it's the water company's problem. Call the water company. They say, no, it's a fire company's problem. So now there's a fire hydrant leaking on the street, right? So we just fixed the problem because we've got a bunch of capable people who know how to use a wrench, right? Okay, problem solved. But what that says to me is that those people on the other end of the line are unserious. They're not serious about what they're doing. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You can be a bartender, you can be a driver, you can be a manufacturer, you can be a venture capitalist, you can be a waiter, or you can be a finance person. But all of this society that we've built of these different roles that we play to support each other is what got us from, hey, everyone's fighting over food, to no, Ian is the town security guard, Lucas is the mayor, and Chris is the, you know, the court jester. And we play all those roles because that creates the meta structure that allows us to do fun shit and build society instead of having to progress back to this point of, you know, fighting over food or whatever. And when you see people like the water company or the fire company taking their roles in society unseriously, then you know that that's a signal that, you know, everyone is too comfortable with how stable everything is and has forgotten that we're, you know, for, you know, the water company says it's not my responsibility. The fire company says it's not my responsibility. You've got 10 more rungs of the abstraction layer of society that say not my responsibility and they're unserious about it. Very quickly, you get down to people are fighting in the street, right? That's the problem. What's your overall take, bullish or bearish, on the future of the U.S.? 
I'll tell you that like the rational economic decision that one might make is to start learning Mandarin as fast as possible. But I'm bullish because humans have a great ability to like rise to a great challenge when it really matters. And this is one of those challenges where like the end game is effectively, you know, this is how I think about it is this is the 10 to 20 year period where humanity will settle the moon as the first island in settling the solar system, right? So if we think a million years in the future, like this is the 10 to 20 year period where humanity goes through that, you know, level one, two, three civilization stack, and we're about to hit the first rung on the cosmic ladder. And if you care at all about history, and maybe you don't, fuck the US versus CCP thing. Who cares about it? Do you want people in a million years' time to look back and go, wow, like the people leading this push were totalitarians that like chemically castrate millions of women and have like huge amounts of slavery, like making iPhones for people. No, that's just simply like how, that is not how I want humanity to be remembered. That's not how anybody wants humanity to be remembered. So regardless of all the politics, like that cannot be our foot on the cosmic ladder. That's just not how this is going to play out. And I think when people start realizing that that's what's going on and that's what's really at stake, it's it's monumental. This isn't like a turf war over Cuba, you know? This isn't like, hey, we'll touch off on the moon and we'll come back. This is like really serious. And how we play out the next 20 years really affects the next thousand because space is the ultimate high ground and you have all these knock-on effects and like yada yada. So I wouldn't say I'm necessarily bullish on the US. I would say I'm bullish on the US population as a the best descriptor we've got of the best humanity has to offer. Because I think it'll be a combination of the U- a US-led charge, but like many other people getting involved. But I'm ultimately bullish in our ability to recognize what's at stake, rise to the challenge, and ensure that the next 100 years are governed by a largely rational, largely free, roughly democratic, democratic, roughly fair society, the best we can possibly construct, versus a totalitarian state that's doing all sorts of bad stuff, like that simply no one wants to be under the yoke of. And I think historically when humans of any race, religion or creed have been faced with something as existential as that, we've risen to the challenge and we've always we've always defeated it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So that's why I'm ultimately bullish. But I think it's going to come from a place of, you know, humans save the world, not, not anything like rational you can put on a spreadsheet. You know what I mean? One thing that I'd be very curious to get your take on is as we look at the world uh, in Silicon Valley, and we'll use Silicon Valley not as the physical location, but the idea of uh, people raising money and going and building these kind of ventures. Um, it started out uh, building silicon chips, right? It, it very hardware, very you know yeah. manufacturing oriented. Yeah. That's that's the original. Then in the last twenty years, it's really shifted towards software, and we see a lot of people. Nothing wrong with building a great SaaS company. We backed a lot of great SaaS companies, but there's this big trend towards okay. What can we do at the lowest cost to get started? And it makes sense why there's a lot of shifting towards there. In the last several years, we've all, I think, noticed this new trend of uh, backing these actual deep tech hardware frontier tech companies. And I think that trend is amazing because it's what society, the Western world, the entire planet needs. I'd be curious to get your take on how you think that trajectory is going to continue. Do you think there'll be more and more funding for deep tech ideas? Obviously, you know, there's still a high bar to get anything funded, but how how do you think that market will continue to evolve? And how do we foster getting more entrepreneurs interested in hard tech, deep tech, building real physical things, not just software? And again, we love software, but how do we how do we go beyond that to some degree? Yeah. So I think actually our, our mutual friend Dalian caught on to this a couple of years ago, and you can hear him in a previous couple of podcasts. And he, he throws out this one liner, which I think is more prescient than people give him credit for. And it's that over the you know over the next cycle, all the returns will be in atoms, not bits, but it's returns. And basically, because the arbitrage of SaaS pricing has been ironed out, that everyone's got a you know discounted IRR model that links you know customer growth rate to net dollar revenue retention, you know blah 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 blah, such that basically the returns are ironed out because everyone's using the same spreadsheet, right? So I think because everyone knows how to invest in SaaS companies at a capital markets level, you know, people then seek risk, right? And then through the risk seeking for higher IRR or differentiated returns, you have to go into deep tech companies, right? That's just that's just how it goes. Uh, so I think the conflation of that dynamic plus 
you know, people, there's, there's been several successes like SpaceX, like Andrew, where, you know, LPs at Yale or whatever have, you know, realized that the VCs aren't that crazy. You know, Lux has had a big bunch of public SPAC wins, which aren't fake companies, they're real companies, you know, like they're delivering real cash flows, yada, yada, yada. That I think those two dynamics are going to drive a lot of investment. And also, I think there are very few founders that can actually pull it off because, you know, the reason why we have many good aerospace companies is because Elon produced many good 30-year-olds that did put their 20s in SpaceX. And now there's a ton of great aerospace engineers, right? There is not a ton of good deep tech founders because we haven't gone through the PayPal mafia wave of having these people learn the hard lessons and then spin out and do other things, which by the way, then creates a situation where it's actually K-shaped because you have very few founders, lots of capital, very few opportunities where those two things intersect, right? But then, the, you know, the capital attracts a founder from Stripe. You know, they want to they go into deep tech because they see all the money flooding in and the market will correct itself, right? But you're going to need a couple of SpaceX or PayPal mafias to spin out to, be, to have that kind of throughput and like learn the hard lessons of how to, how to build stuff. And I, I do think that is one of the things that we will produce at Hadrian is a number of people from regular software companies or not from startups who will learn how to do the thing and then hopefully, you know, go off and found their own things. Cause that, that's how I kind of see it playing out over the next couple of years. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, the thing I was thinking about is you look at most software SaaS companies and there's at least two or three people trying very similar things with different tactics and one may win. It feels like in deep tech, or at least in the case of Hadrian, right? It's really just Hadrian. And I think a lot of that goes back to your point around what's the Venn diagram of the funding and the founder who actually understands the space and the market and all of that really coming together. On, the, on that topic, Chris, like what are the biggest bottlenecks preventing us from creating more companies like Hadrian, more companies like Andrew, et cetera? Like, is it the lack of capital? Is it the lack of founders that have that sort of uh, prior experience, as you're saying, um, lack of demand from government or other players in the ecosystem? Uh, how, how, how do you look at it? Basically, I think you can't do the lean startup in deep tech. So let me wind back a step. If you take a company like Segment, right, who, as I remember, started off a as a like, it was like a university coaching thing to upload your notes or like something. It was a great idea, but within the first three months they worked out, it didn't work, right? And they went through like 11 ideas and then finally one of their like plugins that was on GitHub was the source market and then suddenly it took off and now it's Segment, right? Amazing. Um, but the cost of them to like pivot, say 10 software engineers on a dime to a new path is actually pretty cheap. So you get to snake through reality and find what works with deep tech, like Hadrian or Vada or anything else. Like we're making $10 million worth of capital bets and trajectory with a very specific set of skills. And if I've misaligned that by more than say 20 degrees from the, you know, from the arc, you can't pivot the thing. The machines aren't compatible. The, the wrong people got hired, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, and, and many, many, many entrepreneurs have been taught like quote unquote lean startup method or whatever. That really means don't think from first principles, just iterate yourself through the market to a solution, right? Which makes sense. But in deep tech, you have to think through first principles because of this capital bet kind of scenario, which requires someone who knows finance, debt, manufacturing, like you have to have a decision maker that's up and down the stack and there's thinking first principles about it. Um, otherwise, otherwise you fail because you're basically making a, a two-year bet and you better be damn sure you're right because you don't get a second shot at iteration. But we've trained a bunch of founders to think in iterations, not in first principles. And that's what's really hard that I see people starting deep tech companies. It's like, no, like, man, like, if you're wrong about this one assumption that this customer base is not going to adopt your thing, you're going to be you're going to be 18 months deep into your roadmap. You spent 15 million dollars. You built this thing. Customers don't want it. You've got six months worth of cash left, and you've got no room to pivot. But that's not from a lack of room to pivot. It's just that's how deep tech works. You just have to be really sure that the thing happens. And we, not a lot of founders actually genuinely can think through first principles up and down an abstraction layer to make that right bet. And Chris, um, I, I have to ask, you know, related to the conversation that we're having about aspiration and about the, the challenges that we're facing, do you think that those two topics interact at all? You know, is this sort of marginal thinking uh, that, that you were describing uh, in some ways related to the, to the lack of ambition that, that, that we're talking about a few minutes ago? I, I do, because it's, it's the difference between 
what are the fundamental drivers of how the real world works? You know, like, is there objective reality or is there not? And yes, I think there is a fundamental cultural driver of people who are successful at manufacturing because they understand there's objective reality. Like you either made the part or you didn't. The rocket flies or it doesn't, right? <laughs> that drives a real cultural impact, right? Whereas if you're iterating towards a solution, like you, you can dodge that reality for a long, 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 long time. Um, yes, and, and I do think deep tech founders who are successful, even in biotech, it's the same thing. Like you're making a three-year, $25 million bet that your thesis is right. You have to have thought through all the strategies in and out of that, whether it's technology or science or whatever. And yeah, it, it takes a certain type of cultural brain that produces people who can make those hard decisions. So Chris, if you're one of our listeners, um, and this is resonating with you and you're excited about this, what is one piece of advice that you would give for someone who really cares about the future of America, uh, Western values, et cetera? What, what should they be doing right now? I would say like, so, you know, you're a software engineer working at Google or a startup or something like that, or you're an analyst at McKinsey, you know, whatever. You're incredibly successful. Like, is what you're doing like hurting what we're trying to achieve or like helping it? And and what can you do to help? And the barrier to help is actually like pretty, pretty small. Like people think deep tech is this like realm of the universe that's like super complicated and it is. But like, man, if you're like an SRE at Google that's like keeping a thousand hits a day on Google Maps from like dying, like, you know, making one machine talk to another is like not, it's not that hard as far as things go. So I would just say like, Think through first principles about what you're doing and how it affects your life and the culture and like go go join a company or an organization that's more mission aligned to fix it. And that's it. And the reality is you just have to start doing it. You know, there's no one clean answer. You just have to start moving in the right direction and figure it out along the way. But be really willing to like rip up your priors and start again. And are the assumptions that you made to get as successful as where you are, you know, are they baked in reality or have you just climbed an abstraction ladder of, you know, a, a dominance hierarchy that's based around politics versus having contact with reality because you've been so successful and, and start questioning those and then start doing something about it. And maybe to wrap us up, I, I think Ian and I never really intended to have a, a closing question that we always ask people, but we end up talking about these challenges and this potential grim future uh, that, that, that you mentioned. In the face of all of this, what keeps you optimistic? That's an excellent question. You know what? It's a combination of like things are getting better in some domains incredibly rapidly and also fixing the things that are broken aren't that hard. Honestly, like Adrian is a hard business to run, but it's not that hard. You know, like we used to build, what, what keeps me optimistic is like there were people 40 years ago that built stealth fighter jets in 90 days when given the challenge. Like that is far more complicated than like kicking out the DA of San Francisco or like winning an extra thousand votes in the administration or like voting the right way to like tell the government they're doing the wrong things or like stepping up to a kind of, you know, global bully or whatever. And like things might seem like they're falling apart on like a daily or weekly level, but the arc of history is long and the direction of progress is like optimistic. So I kind of like to say to the guys, it's like, the days are hard, but like the years, you know, like the, the, the meta, the type two is like, highly highly positive and like highly optimistic and that's the way you have to be to like achieve big things you have to be like willing to bear short-term pain and be annoyed by it but at the end of the day as you go into sleep being like no like the arrow of progress is going in the right direction and we're going to make it and that's how that's how big things get done you know you got a fundamental philosophical choice you can wake up and be an optimist a rational optimist not delusional you got to be a rational optimist or you can be a pessimist that thinks this like the world's falling down there's no hope so, like, there's a fundamental choice. Just, like, do you believe that the Jetsons' future is possible or are you resigned to the fate of history? Do you believe that all of this is big systems that are just whipsawing around individuals and you've got, you've got no free action, you've got no, you can't move the needle at all? Or do you one of those people that if you just kind of put the right energy out of the universe, you can, you can make a dent and you can, and if enough people start moving in the right direction, you can make a really big dent? And at the end of the day, that is the choice that all of us make when we wake up every morning. And even if shit is hitting the fan, even if we end up picking up arms and defending the country, I'll still be an optimist because do you really want to live as like a pessimist who believes that we're all fucked and humans are bad and blah, 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 blah? No, that's like no way to live. That's no way to live. There's no way to build. There's no way to be. So at a deeper philosophical level, like 
why would you why would you not be an optimist, at least a rational one, given how far we've come over the last, you know, 20, 50, 100 years? It, I, I love how you're describing this. And it sort of reminds me um, of a, a little bit of nuance to what you're saying. It's something that I think Peter Thiel defined as sort of like the difference between a definite opt optimist and an indefinite optimist. Yep. And in some ways, I feel like we've been having too much of this sort of indefinite optimist over the last few decades. And that relates to a lot of the challenges <laughs> of a lot of unserious people that, that you were talking about, that, you know, the future is just going to get better. You can just sit back and enjoy and have an easy life. And, and you know, what you're describing is a, a very definite optimist future that we can actually go and build those hard things. Then they're going to be hard, but they're going to be worth it. Yeah. And I, I think like the way I would frame it is when you're writing a song or a poem or inspiring people or thinking about what your next 10 years of your life want to be like, you should be a irrational, indefinite optimist because humans are going to win, right? When you're making a decision about, hey, I'm building this company and are we going to run out of cash in three months or not? You should be a definite optimist in that it is possible, but you have to be really make close contact with reality. And that I think is the thing that people need to get used to is by being realistic about the challenges that are in front of you for the next day, week or month, you can behave that way rationally and be a definite optimist, but be prepared to make contact with reality and do the hard things that are necessary to win. But when you're having a beer with a friend and talking about how your business is going or talking about how the country is going, you're absolutely, you have to be an indefinite optimist. Like we are, we are winning, we're on the path, but you have to have both. Otherwise you get depressed people who are only like worried about what the next day looks like and things are bad and it's all going to fall down. Or you get a bunch of irrational, unserious people being like, eh, things are fine, we'll sort it out with no connection to the actions that get you there. And the only way to do it is to do both. I, I love that. I feel like uh, it's like so true, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're working some job or just in life to have that kind of dual mentality. You could be a therapist, Chris. It's great. It's super helpful. This is what you, you know, you see this in like people who grew up super poor and now they're successful. It's like, yeah, I was in a, pop, a shitty apartment in New York, like barely able to live and every day was painfully hard, but I knew I was going to make it. And four years later, they make it. They have some job opportunity, they become an actor or whatever the fuck. And the pattern is always, they were an indefinite optimist, but they were a definite optimist when it came to like, can I put food on the table the next day? Wonderful. Chris, this was so great. Thank you so much. This was uh, incredible. No, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Check us out at villageglobal.vc where you can find links and other information about today's episode.